Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Today is part three, the final part of a three-part series titled, I'm Still Here. And it is my reflection on why I still call myself a Christian. And before we jump into part three, I want to do a quick recap of the first two parts. And by the way, if you've not listened to them, you may want to hit pause Go and listen to part one and part two, and then come back and listen to this one, or you can just keep listening and uh, get the recaps, and then go back and listen to part one and part two if they sound interesting to you. So with that said, the recap, part one. On part one, I spoke of how it is possible we confine Christianity to one expression. So when we say, I am a Christian, or when we refer to Christianity, It's possible that what we have in mind at one level or another are the particular beliefs or the particular rituals or a specific doctrine found in one denomination or one expression of Christianity. And my being a Christian I spoke of is because I have recognized and I'm recognizing and learning that the Christian tradition is expansive And that any singular expression of Christianity is only one part of the larger whole. And I spoke of how uh, I want to go more deeply into this. I want to see how deep and wide the Christian tradition is, rather than just throw the one expression I grew up in away and say, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. So I still have the expression I grew up with, but now it's a part of a larger whole rather than the part being the whole of my Christian experience. And on part two, we talked about Jesus and his relationship with religion. We talked about how religion for Jesus seemed to be a vehicle to connect with the divine. And oftentimes, if we're not careful, religion for us can become the goal. Religion can become the vision, forgetting that religion is only a vehicle. You see, Jesus was willing to amend or change or even at times completely toss out or um, give new meaning to religious thinking if it stood in the way of one's connection with God. One's connection with God is the vision. Religion is the vehicle to get us there. So if the vehicle is not getting us to connecting connection with God, or if the vehicle is preventing certain people or some people or anyone actually from connecting with God, then the vehicle needs to change. And so I talked about how I'm still here, I'm still a Christian, because this is how we witness or what we witness in Jesus's relationship with religion, and that we can be faithful to Christianity by being those who are willing to amend it and change it, and at times bury certain aspects of it. And so today, part three, I want to share how the Christian tradition invites us to go beyond itself. Like I just said, healthy religion is a vehicle. It's not a boundary. It's not the vision. It's not the final destination. It is a vehicle for us to get into the heart and life and love of the divine mystery. It's a vehicle to connect us with the heart of God, which means we need to consider how any single expression or any single group could ever say our finite understanding completely and totally encompasses the infinite God that we worship. No, 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 no. A finite religious viewpoint ought to springboard us, lead us toward the infinite God, because our viewpoints are not infinite. That's God. 
our viewpoints are finite. That's not God. And so healthy religion actually leads us into something bigger than itself. And so with that in mind, let's start at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Many people, even those who are not entirely familiar with the Bible or with Christianity or with Judaism, um, they are familiar with the creation poem found in the Hebrew scriptures in Genesis chapter 1. Now, this chapter speaks poetically of how God fashioned the universe with God's breath or with God's words, God speaking the universe into existence. And throughout Genesis 1, we witness the intersection of the divine with the earth. We, we witness the intersection of the spirit of God with the physical, with animals, with humanity. That God's spirit, and, and the word, by the way, in Hebrew for spirit is the same word as breath or wind, that God's breath, God's wind, God's life, God's spirit, it brings life into all things. And so Genesis 1 points toward a way of viewing one another, of viewing animals, of viewing the earth, and of viewing the entire universe. And what it suggests is this. It suggests that all things, all places, are filled with the divine life, with the divine presence. Now, we might be sitting here in 2019 and hear that and think, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. However, if we consider this from the perspective of someone who would have lived in the ancient Near Eastern world thousands of years ago, when this poem that's found in Genesis 1 was originally circulating, we would have heard it way differently than we hear it now. One of the things that we would have heard in this poem is this, that the entire universe is a temple, which is to say the entire universe, the whole universe, is a meeting place, a joining of the physical and the spiritual That the world in which we live, it's a union of the divine presence manifested in a physical sign in reality. Now, here's why I say that. In the ancient world, temples were considered to be a meeting place of the divine and the physical, of the gods here on this earth. It was a geographic location, a place that you could go to where a god or a goddess dwelled, that their presence was there in a unique way that was not present anywhere else. Uh, temples were places where the heavens, which would be the abode of the gods, and the earth, which would be the abode of humans, temples were places where the heavens and the earth intersected. And by the way, we still have this idea about sacred buildings. People would have looked at a temple and said, that's sacred, it's set apart, it's unique, it's designed for a specific purpose, it's a dwelling of the gods. We actually still have this idea of certain buildings, especially, depending on what tradition you grew up in, especially church buildings. Uh, When I was in middle school, my parents were a part of this really big church, and they were really involved in this very big church, which meant that we were there all the time um, because I didn't have a license and I didn't have a choice, and so they'd always bring me with them like throughout the week and on certain weeknights and everything else. Now, thankfully, uh, one of my best friends (laughs) was the pastor's son, And because the pastor's family was there all the time, it meant that he was there all the time. So he and I had a lot of fun in this church building, which is to say we wreaked wreaked havoc in that church building. Um, I mean, there was just, there's so many endless stories. Uh, Like, for example, we, I don't remember how we did this, but we figured out that the phone in the elevator 
was somehow like connected to the telephone line that belonged to our youth pastor. So like I said, I don't know how we figured it out, but we would go at times and we would eavesdrop on his phone calls and conversations with parents. Um, so suffice to say, we knew, so, <laughs> we knew so much dirt about kids in our youth group. And it, it finally ended when there was one day we were eavesdropping and we were like laughing at the phone conversation. And I'll never forget, he was like, what's going on? There's, there's somebody else on this line. How did someone else do this? We hung up and we ran and next time we checked, they had figured it out. But there was another time um, where like our youth pastor loved sound systems, loved microphones. And so we were in the building on a Wednesday night before our youth group's gathering and we broke down the sound system, um, put it on the cart that was like that you could wheel around the building, and we went and we hit it. And we did this like an hour, hour and a half before the gathering. So all these kids are showing up, and our youth pastor walks in, and they like couldn't play music, they couldn't speak over the crowd. Some of you are listening to this, and you're like, you were you were so annoying. Um, yep. <laughs> We totally were. Um, and so, you know what? In light of that, I suppose it's time to say this to uh, to that youth pastor. His name was Randy. Um, hey, Randy, if you're out there, if by any chance you're listening, I'm sorry. Um, and by the way, if you have any health issues related to hypertension, <laughs> I will own that. Um, oh, my goodness. Anyway, here's where I'm going with all this. Um, sacred buildings. One particular time, uh, my friend and I were in the building, and we were like exploring different corners of the building and we found a full cross country ski set, the boots, the poles and the skis. And we had no idea who, who it belonged to. We didn't actually even care, uh, which I know is not surprising. And so what we did is we came up with a, the idea of making a race course in the church building. This is a really big church building. And we said, let's, cross-country ski the race course, and we'll time each other to see who who can win. And um, so I went first. And by the way, I'm not bragging. I'm not going to lie, though. I posted a pretty respectable time for my first time on the brand new course. And um, we were laughing our heads off. So my buddy puts on the gear and gets to the starting line, and he takes off. And he disappeared around the corner. And I could hear the slapping of the cross-country skis on the carpet in the concrete floor below it, and I could hear the cross-country ski slapping fade as he maneuvered down the course. And I'm standing there all by myself, and I'm timing him, and all I'm thinking to myself is how long it took me, and I'm hoping that I'll beat him. And the longer he took, the more I knew I was going to win. And then I hear the slap of the cross-country skis coming down the other hallway, which was like the home stretch, the last stretch of the course that we had just made up. And as the cross-country ski slap sound gets louder, I hear the voice of an adult. And I could not make out the words that I was hearing, but I could tell by the tone of the voice, he was not happy. So I'm looking down the hallway, and my friend rounds the corner, comes into view, and right behind him was a man who, because of our activity in the building, had slowly become our nemesis. 
He was the director of the facilities for the church. And my my friends running on cross-country skis with the poles and everything, flying down, trying to beat my time. And this guy, the director of maintenance, is between fast walking and slow jogging, yelling at my friend as he reaches for the finish line and throws himself across it and does a spread eagle face down on the carpet. And by the way, as much as effort as he put into it, it's worth noting, I did win by a couple of seconds. But anyway, my friend's on the floor, face down. I'm leaning against the wall laughing, but the maintenance guy was not laughing. I mean, this guy was charged with caring for the house of the Lord, as he called it. He was so mad in that moment, which, by the way, only made us laugh harder. And I remember him talking about the disrespect we showed, and he was yelling. He's like, you shouldn't be running in the house of the Lord, especially with skis on. And some of you are like, okay, back to the annoying thing. (laughs) You weren't just annoying. You were total morons. And yes, absolutely we were. And by the way, the guy's name was Ken, is Ken. And I suppose just like I did with Randy, I ought to say to Ken, the head of facilities, if you're listening, I'm sorry. And maybe you, like Randy, have health issues related to hypertension, and I'll own that too. Um, but see, for, for many people, uh, especially people in that church, the church building, were not. it was not just like another building. It was not a gym or it wasn't like a bank. That These were not just places of worship. These, are, these places are holy ground. They're sacred in a way the DMV is not, which means you certainly don't have a cross-country ski race in those buildings. There's a sense in which you look at some of these buildings, you say, oh, there's something sacred about that. They're set apart. So when you think about temples, take that to a whole other level. I mean, temples were a meeting place of heaven, the abode of the gods, and earth, the abode of humanity. They, in a unique way, housed the presence of a particular god or goddess. Temples were the dwelling place of a god on earth. And it wasn't just that. There was also power associated with the temple. Uh, Temples were not just places of worship. They were, in many instances, the center of life. Temples served as banks, temples were centers for education, and centers, or temples could be centers of political power. Uh, a temple gave kings and queens and rulers a platform for their role in the divine rule of the world. You see, many who ruled in the ancient world did not just claim regal power as a part of the royal family. They often attached some kind of heavenly or divine power to the throne, that they claimed this divine power, they, they, their, their platform came from the gods. And some even went so far as to claim that they were a physical manifestation of the gods here on this earth. This is the kind of power they wielded. And so it made sense then for political power to be read, wed to religious authority. To build a temple as a king then was, was to claim some kind um, of power from the gods. One example of this, uh, among many, is about a Mesopotamian king who ruled in a province called Lagash. He undertook the rebuilding of one of the central temples, and once the temple was finished, they placed a statue of the king in the temple as the centerpiece. Now, why would he place a statue of himself there? Well, because the king believed himself to be a god, 
And in the minds of the people in the Lagash province, they believe the king to be a god. And of course, if the king then is going to build and restore a temple, well, the temple would not be complete without an image of the god in the temple. And so, of course, you would put an image of the god in the temple. And so we know from historical record at the completion of the temple, the king and all the citizens of Lagash dedicated the temple. It was a celebration and a dedication that lasted seven days. And the apex of the festival was of the king putting his image in the temple. And there's another story, by the way, uh, told about the god named Baal. This is like a legendary mythic story. And Baal, if you don't know, was a fertility god in the ancient Near Eastern world. He's mentioned all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And there's a story that talks about how Baal went to battle against and war against Yom, who was the god of the sea, and against Mot, the god of the underworld. And the battle lasted seven days. At the end of the battle, Baal was victorious. There was a temple built in Baal's honor. And the ancient poem records Baal's words when celebrating about building his temple of silver and gold. And of course, placed in the temple at the end of its completion is an image of Baal. Because of course, a temple has to have the image of the God in it. This was completely normal, by the way. Temples always had images of the gods. And if the king or the queen or the royal family was considered gods, it had images of them in there. This is true all over the ancient world. In Egypt, for example, many of you, I assume, have heard of King Tut. King Tut's full name literally means he who is like the god Amun, which means he was an image of God. And there are images of King Tut in sacred places. Why? Because those sacred places are the meeting places of heaven and earth. They're filled with the image of God. There's images throughout Assyria that have been uncovered in in excavations where there are images of the gods in Assyrian temples. These were sacred places, meeting place of heaven and earth, places populated by a statue or an idol or an image of the gods, which, of course, brings us back to Genesis 1. And by now, I assume you see where all of this is going. Genesis 1 is a poem using imagery in language in ideas and cultural references about God constructing a temple. And at the apex of this creation, God's image is placed in the temple. Who is there to rule and reign? Human beings. You and me. The poem is written as though God is constructing a temple and placing God's image in it except it's not one geographic location. The entirety of the universe is the platform for God's divine rule and reign everywhere, and it's filled with images of God who are invited to rule and reign with divine authority. This is not just one geographic location, like I just said. This is about every square inch of the universe being sacred, that every place one sets their foot is a meeting place of heaven and earth. And if we read through Genesis with this kind of lens, it has the power to inform things that we see going forward, not only in the book of Genesis, but throughout the Bible. For example, by the time you get to Genesis 12, we read the story of Abram, who's later named Abraham. He's told by God to go, to leave his father's land and his father's household, which also means leave your father's gods, leave your father's religion. 
because the gods in that day and age were regional. They, they, were, they had zip codes, <laughs> is how people thought of it. And this story is incredible, because what it means is that Abram hears the call of God, the God of the Jewish people, the God of the Bible, while in a land that was a territory of other gods. The subtext in Genesis 12, when Abram is called, is this, God doesn't do boundaries. And why would God have to do boundaries? He's not bound by any one physical geographical location. The entire universe is God's temple. I mean, consider the story of Abraham's grandson, Jacob. If you know the story, Jacob swindles his brother Esau. He's on the run from him. He's a little bit afraid. While he's on the run, he stops one night, settles down, and falls asleep. He's asleep, and he has a dream or a vision, and he sees a stairway that's resting on the earth at the bottom, and its top goes up to the heavens, which again, now this is symbolizing this meeting place of heaven and earth. Angels are going up and down the ladder, and then he sees God at the top of the ladder, and God says to him, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, speaking of his grandfather and his father. Then God pronounces the same promise to Jacob that he gave to Abram and that he gave to Isaac. Jacob wakes up and says, surely God is in this place and I I was not aware of it. Jacob had left his father's house in home, which means he left his father's God and his father's religion. All of a sudden he goes to another geographic place and God is there too. And he goes, God was in this place. Surely the Lord was in this place, and I I was not aware of it. This, this statement speaks to where Jacob beginning to wake up to the fact that this whole thing, the whole universe is a temple. Something in Jacob up to that point was apparently not aware of the reality that God's presence is fused with and intersects with all places. There's the story of Moses. Moses is born to a Hebrew woman, and then he's reared in the household of Pharaoh. And Moses, uh, through a long series of of circumstances, ends up killing an Egyptian slave driver, uh, becomes a fugitive, goes on the run, ends up in the wilderness away from Egypt. And one day while he's out tending sheep, he sees a curious sight. There's a bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up. And so Moses says, I will go see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. He gets near to the bush that's on fire, but not burning up. And a voice speaks to Moses from the bush and says, hey, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. You see, this is sacred space, Moses. Moses, this is space that's filled with the divine presence. You are in my temple only because you're alive and you're breathing and living and walking on planet earth. This is an invitation to see all of this as a temple, that everywhere is a meeting place of heaven and earth. I said in the last episode, Jesus wasn't um, against religion. And I would also add, Jesus wasn't confined by religion either. You see, I believe that Jesus had eyes to see that everything was sacred, that it was all holy, that it was all filled with the divine light in life. This is why Jesus wasn't bound by religion. He understood religions inviting us into something bigger. And what's bigger than the entire universe being the temple? I mean, one example is this. In the, according to uh, the, the Jewish law, which would be found in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, it's called Torah, forgiveness of sins was to be found in the temple. 
And what's interesting is that many people within Jesus' day would have said, yeah, if you need forgiveness of sins, if you need to have atonement for your sins, so to speak, go to the temple. There's specific sacrifices and rites and rituals you can perform. What's interesting, though, is that Jesus seems not to go to the temple and side with that way of thinking. Jesus instead goes to a river where there's this bizarre prophetic figure calling people to a baptism of repentance because the kingdom of God is near. And we learn in the Gospels that people are going to the river where John the Baptist is, and they're confessing their sins and receiving a baptism of repentance. You see, it's not that Jesus was against the temple. He just realized that the temple isn't the center of everything in the way you all think it is. Yes, we can have these things in our lives that somehow center us, invite us, that hold a special place for us, but every square inch of the universe is pulsing with divine life and light. Here in Denver, we have the mountains just to the west of us, and and from where I'm sitting right now, in 25 minutes, I could be um, in the middle of, of, of nowhere, it feels like. Give me 40 minutes and I can be hiking a 14 or a 14,000 foot mountain. And, and I often hear people in Denver uh, talk about the love that they have of the mountains and how somehow when they are there, they feel this connection to God. Because though it is all sacred, like I said, there's moments and there's places that seem to give us eyes to see it more clearly. And man, it, when you're in the mountains and closer to nature, it's like you're more aware of your surroundings. You're, you feel connected to the soil that you're standing on, and you feel connected to it in, a, in, in this in beautiful way, it, recognizing almost like this is, this is the soil from which we've come. And of course, we would experience the presence of God in a new way. And, and, and here's the thing. No matter what the maintenance guy yelled at my friend and I after our cross-country ski race, church buildings or temple or houses of worship, while they may help us understand, see, experience the divine in a greater way, they are no more sacred than a trail that's winding its way through the woods or up the side of a mountain. There are places, yes, that can help us be more aware, but we need to remember that this awareness ought to open us up to a una universal God and a universal story that has been unfolding since the moment our universe burst into existence. All of it is sacred. This is what we witness from the opening words of the text. And this ought to invite us then into something bigger. This ought to lend to us a great amount of freedom. This is why I say I I think healthy religion invites us beyond itself. We need to remember Religion, theology, teaching, doctrine, dogma, all of these things are helpful and they should be honored. But all of these things are are crafted by human beings who live and exist in a particular space in a particular time. And they live in a particular space and time, but also in the midst of a universe that is a temple, which means Everything is sacred, not just the very few things that our particular expression deems sacred. Now, some of you are like, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. That sounds like a big jump. Like, you just went from, like, the universe, you know, whatever, rocks, trees, squirrels, grass, like, that's sacred, to, like, wait, now everything is sacred? That feels like a big jump for me, And, and I would say yes, possibly. But let me tell you why I say this. Let me reflect on something Paul writes to the church in Corinth. 
The church in Corinth is embroiled in an argument, and their argument is about whose teaching they should follow. So some say, I am of Paul, meaning I agree with Paul's teaching. Others are like, I'm, no, I'm of Apollos. I agree with Apollos' teaching. No, I'm of Cephas. And now, by the way, I know it's really hard to imagine um, the church arguing over particular teachers and their, their teachings and their doctrine, but just, just try to do that. Um, Paul sees them arguing, and in response, in 1 Corinthians 3, this is what he says. He says, all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And then he goes further than that. He says, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Let me repeat that. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All things are yours You are of Christ, and Christ is of God. All things are yours. He he says death, life, present, future. It's like what he's trying to do is get people to expand how they view the world in which they live. He's not trying to constrict it. All things are yours. Now, by the way, if you take the Greek and translate it literally, it literally translates as all things, like meaning everything. Everything is yours. And by the way, we see Paul employ this way of thinking when he goes to the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. If you're not familiar with the story, Paul makes his way to Athens. He arrives before his crew does, and he spends time walking around in the marketplace and making some observations about what's going on. Some scholars suggest that there was as many as 3,000 gods that were represented in Athens alone. Not only that, but they got to thinking, hey, if there's a God out there that we're not aware of and we don't represent that God, that God could be very upset with us. So why don't we have an altar to the unknown God just to kind of cover our bases? And so Paul walks around the city, makes careful observation to it. He goes up to the Areopagus, which was kind of the center for philosophy and discourse and discussion. And he begins by saying, people of Athens... I see in every way you are very religious. You even have an altar to the unknown God. This God who for you is unknown, I'm here to make known to you today. Let me paraphrase. Paul goes, hey, you guys are up to some really good stuff. And in some ways, you're on to the same thing I'm on to. I want to share with you what my experience of it is. Let's chat. (laughs) Maybe we could say it that way. What, this is what he doesn't say. He doesn't walk in and say, you filthy pagans, you are dead wrong. You, you seriously have 3,000 gods you're worshiping? What's wrong with you? No. He says, I've made careful observation. You're incredibly devoted. And by the way, you're tapping into something that I'm tapping into. Let me share with you how I understand it. What's fascinating about Acts chapter 17 and Paul's discourse when he's up on the Areopagus is this. So many people would say, this is Paul preaching the gospel. And I would agree, absolutely it is. Except for the fact Paul never mentions some of the things that have become for us what we have to talk about. Paul actually never says the name Jesus. Paul never says that Jesus is divine. Paul never talks about the blood. I mean, Paul actually references their stuff. 
He not only references their worship of gods and their devotion and the altar to the unknown God, Paul quotes pagan philosophers as a way of saying, you guys are tapping into this. Paul affirms the lyrics of the poems from the pagans. It's fascinating. And I bring this up because what happens when you find something that is good and true and beautiful outside of the Christian tradition? What do you do with that? Well, Paul says all things are yours. What happens when you encounter someone you've long believed might be wrongheaded or maybe even been told that that particular religion has dangerous beliefs? And then you sit with them and you get to know them. You become friends and something in you is like, this person is incredible. This person is loving and generous. They're genuine. They're, they're peaceful. They're patient. They're kind. They're good. They're faithful. They're gentle. Like, what do you... What do you do with that? And here's why I bring this up. In those moments, we have to ask, where do those qualities come from? What is the source of love? What is the source of generosity? What is the source of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness? And by the way, you're like, man, that less sounds familiar. Well, it should. Paul calls these things the fruit of the Spirit. What is the source of those things? Even when they're coming from people who are outside of the Christian tradition. You see, the Christian tradition states pretty plainly, God is love, that love is from God. And so if we experience love somewhere else outside of our tradition, we have to begin asking sincere questions of, is there another source of love? Or is there something out there that just looks like love, but it's really not love, and it's just leading people astray, even though it looks like love, looks like love to the extent that it looks like the same love I practice, (laughs) if you were able to follow that? Like, what's happening here? Or is there only one source of love? Is it possible that somehow this temple in which we live, and the God and the Spirit of God that animates and holds all of this together, is it possible that signs of this God appear in all places, even in the places we would least expect it, and even through people that we would never think maybe would would have these things happening. C.S. Lewis, by the way, in his work, Mere Christianity, speaks toward this, and this is what he says. He says, the world does not consist of 100% Christians and 100% non-Christians. There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians, but who still call themselves by that name. Some of them, he writes, are clergymen. There are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. They are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy and to leave in the background the Buddhist teaching on certain other points. Many of the good pagans, long before Christ's birth, may have been in this position, Consequently, it is not much use trying to make judgment about Christians and non-Christians in the mass. Oh, by the way, I often tell people that when I'm skirting heresy, I quote C.S. Lewis. Um, I had a conversation actually about this very thing several years ago. I was at a, at a conference with a bunch of pastors, and I got into conversation with one of the pastors, and it was right around the time that Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie 
had built a uh, shelter or an orphanage. I can't remember what it was, the Brangelina, whatever orphanage. And he said to me, yeah, did you hear about this? It was kind of fired up about it. And I was like, yeah. And he said, you know what I want to do? I want to go over there, speaking of, of Malawi. He said, I want to go over there and I want to build one right next to them. And I was like, why do you want to build an orphanage right next to an orphanage? And he said, because I want one over there that speaks toward the truth. And I said, so you don't, you don't think what they did is true or loving or generous or kind? And he said, no, we have the truth. As though, again, like we contain it in our one singular expression. And I thought to myself, well, wait, wait. Everything that I know about what caused them and motivated them to do what they did over there in Malawi um, came from a place of love and grace and compassion. So we either need to say that there is love and grace and compassion from another source other than the God that we worship, or there is something that looks a lot like love and grace and compassion to the extent where it will actually look so much like it and look so much like God but it's really not. Or we need to say, no, there's one singular source of all of this. And if it's true and it's beautiful and it's good, then it needs to be celebrated. If it's love, it's from God, and we can celebrate that. Even if it comes from unlikely places, even if it comes from unlikely people, even if it comes from unlikely sources, because again, our tradition, no matter how big it might feel, is finite. It does not hold in total the infinite God. Thomas Aquinas famously said and is famously credited with saying, if something is true, no matter who said it, it is always from the Holy Spirit. Let me paraphrase that. If something is true, no matter where it comes from, no matter where it is found, and no matter who said it, it is always from the Holy Spirit. And now some, I, I understand, some feel very afraid of this, but I want to remind you, everything is yours. Some may go, ah, I don't know what to do with this. It just feels like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. All things are yours. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours. You are of Christ and Christ is of God. If it's true, no matter who said it, it's always from the Spirit. We actually don't need to be afraid of this. We ought to then open our arms to it and embrace it and recognize that we are actually a part of a tradition that's teaching this and inviting us to go and discover that, to see that the whole universe is filled with the life and the light and the love of God. It's all sacred. And when we come face to face with this, rather than say, I want to go build an orphanage right next to Brangelina's, we ought to say, now, we should probably remove our shoes and confess that God was in this place, and I, I did not know it. It's a confession. It's a waking up. It's like Jacob saying, we don't have it all figured out. It's a recognition that even our best and healthiest religious forms need to expand and grow because none of them will ever contain the divine. This is what healthy religion knows. We don't wholly contain the divine. Rather, we are wholly contained and held by the divine. Christ is all in all, and we are in Christ. This is what Paul teaches us. Now, I want to say this one note, especially in light of the C.S. Lewis quote. I had someone ask me, like, do you really have to call it Christ, like this, this larger sacredness in the universe? 
Do you really have to call it Christ? Or you know, do you really have to, as C.S. Lewis did, refer to Christianity? And I want to give two thoughts. First is this. The question came up because this particular friend of mine feels really uncomfortable with the idea of Christ or Christian lingo um, because of so much oppression that has come through Christianity and through Jesus' name. And I want to explain why I'm comfortable calling it Christ, partly because obviously it's familiar language, it's my tradition, but it's important to keep in mind that though there has been a lot of evil done in the name of Jesus, if we understand Jesus to be the ultimate revelation of a God who is love, we will see the term Christ speaks of the universe conceived and sustained in love. If we remember that the deepest love of God was expressed by Jesus laying down his life, then we would recognize that when we speak of Christ in the universe, when we speak of Christ being in all, or being all and being in all, then we would recognize this love that's put on display on the cross is anything but oppressive. That, that this speaks of a God who is giving and a God who is loving. And I use the term Christ because I believe this is what it points toward. It speaks toward love. Yes, of course, I use it based out of the religious tradition that I grew up with and that I'm a part of, but I also use it because I believe it points toward love. And with that said, that's kind of my disclaimer, I guess, um, for those who choose to use a different term, for those who are not comfortable with the term Christ, I don't believe, maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm apathetic or I don't care, that there has to be a singular term used. I mean, Paul used other terms in Acts chapter 17, and what we recognize is that if we're going to be all things to all people, as Paul says, um, I have people that talk about the universe and will not say the word God. There are people who talk about the energy, the light, the love. I'm not there to say, you're wrong. Rather, like Paul, as we witness in Acts chapter 17, I want to say, hey, I see in every way that you're devoted, that you're extremely religious, and that you're speaking of something that kind of sounds like the very thing that I'm talking about. So do you have to use the term Christ? I really don't care. I choose to. And if you choose to use another term, I'm going to say, hey, I think we're talking about the same thing. Now, at this point, you might go, okay, um, hang on a second. This, this feels like thin ice. This feels like this slippery slope. I really have some concerns. This seems to be going a little bit far. And if, let me just say this. If right now you feel a little bit uncomfortable, good. I hope you do. I really do. If you have something stirring in you around this where you're thinking to yourself, I need to call some friends and we need to talk. Yeah, good, good. Absolutely you should. Listen to that. I never want anyone to swallow the whole pill and accept everything I said. I always want people to go, huh, and ask some questions. We need to be people who scrutinize what we hear. We need to contemplate. We need to practice wisdom. And I would say we need to do this in community. Wisdom asks us to hold things up to the light, to ask questions, to dig deep, to consider multiple perspectives. And of course, this happens best in community. It's interesting that the Jewish people say that the greatest threat to the community is not heresy, it's hypocrisy. Now, I grew up in a world that said, yeah, the greatest danger is heresy. The greatest danger is false teaching. Well, for the Jewish people, heresy is not a danger because they study in community. And if you're at all familiar with church history, you'll know that most, um, most things that have been called heresy historically in the church are named after one person. 
because you can get into some pretty crazy ideas when you lock yourself into a room alone and start coming up with all kinds of new thinking. We need to practice wisdom. We need to scrutinize. We need to do this in community. We need to hold it up to the light. I mean, for example, if you're with a... With a group of people who's like, man, I was reading the Bible the other day. I think we need to bring back the old child sacrifice thing. Mm, Probably not so much, right? I mean, obviously. But I would say this. I think a healthy question to ask is this. Does this way of thinking, does this thing that appears to be beautiful, does this expression of love that falls outside of what we expected, does this when lived out or does this when we see it resemble what we know to be true about the Jesus we witness in the Gospels? When I encounter this person's heart, when I encounter this person's life, does it resemble what we know to be true about Jesus, the Jesus we witness in the Gospels? Maybe that's a question we should begin asking. Rather than, does this fit my my small expression of Christianity? No, no. Does this seem to resemble the Jesus we witness in the Gospels? And you're like, okay, okay. But my second concern is this. It kind of sounds like you're leaning into universalism. It kind of sounds like you're saying it's all a bunch of different paths up the same mountain. And I want to say this. I can completely and totally understand how it can come off like that. And I suppose I should tell all of you this. It's something I've said before, and I've never made it a secret. I hope with every fiber of my being that universalism, the belief that everyone gets in whatever in means in the life to come, I hope with every fiber of my being that universalism is 100% true. Everything in me hopes that every single human being who has ever lived, no matter how they lived, will one day live in total and complete union with God in the life to come. Absolutely, I want this to be true. Absolutely, I'm rooting for this. So if it sounds like I'm leaning that way, that's why. If you want to give me a label, I am a hope-filled universalist. This is not to say that I believe this is 100% true, but it is to say I hope it is 100% true. And I have always been fascinated, um, or maybe I should say a little bit disturbed, by some who really like believe, like, no, we have to have hell. I'm like, really? This is, a, this is like a doctrine you're... Like, you're, you're good with, like, you want this, you need this? And some of you say, oh, I'm not sure that we need it. I mean, I don't know if anyone's out there saying that. No, there actually are. There's one pastor who said, without hell, we will never understand God's love. And I'm like, wait, 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 what? Without eternal conscious torment, we'll never understand eternal bliss and love with, of God. I don't get that. Because it would be like saying this to me, your kids, Michael, they will never understand how much you love them until they witness a violent and abusive father who, who beats on his kids. That would be the most asinine thing you could say. Like, no, I think they can actually experience my love without ever witnessing an abusive father. And by the way, If my kids and I are able to do something God can't, then we're all in trouble, which tells me we might need to reconsider. I'm not sure we need hell to understand God's love. I'm not sure we need that. I think there are are ways that we can become intimate with love without having this constant fear dangling over our heads. 
And you're like, okay, okay, well, I'm glad you're a hope-filled universalist. Um, I don't hear you saying it's 100% true and ironclad, but I do have another concern. Michael, it sounds like you're lending weight and credence to other religions and religious teachings. And let's not forget, I mean, you know, Jesus, I know it's not popular, but Jesus did talk about the narrow gate, and he talked about the narrow road, and Jesus talked about being the way, the truth, and the life. And I would say, absolutely, he did. He said those things, and I hear you 100%. But I want to, uh, I guess, maybe share a few thoughts or maybe ask a couple of questions about those verses that are often quoted when it comes to this idea that there's other ways or there's other faiths or anything else. First, I want to encourage us to remember, Jesus was not very well liked by a lot of people who would have considered themselves very pious or very religious And the reason he was not liked, in large part, was because of his inclusion of the sinners. I mean, it's not like they were like, dude, did you hear Jesus walked on water? We need to to off that guy. We cannot have people walking on water. It's not like people were like, oh, by the way, did you hear about Jairus, the synagogue ruler? Yeah, his daughter died and Jesus raised her from the dead. We can't have any more of that around here. I mean, this is not what they were upset about. What they were upset about is that Jesus touched lepers. What they're upset about is that Jesus turned and had compassion on a woman who had a medical condition who would continue to bleed and was unclean and outside the fold, and Jesus touched her and healed her and said, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. People were upset because Jesus went to the Decapolis region, the region that was like the most unclean around the Sea of Galilee. People were upset because Jesus was hanging out with drunks and hookers and everybody else. That Jesus was pushing against the boundaries that kept others out. They were upset because Jesus was including more people than they thought should be included. And he did this all the time. Jesus even tells a parable about a banquet, a big meal, and how the religious people will be the ones who are left out of the meal and how the non-religious will be the ones who are at the celebration. You see, Jesus' radical inclusivity was a problem for the religious-minded who wanted to tend to the boundaries of religious-based exclusion. And I find this so fascinating because today I encounter so many religious people who take two of Jesus's quotes that I mentioned and they make those quotes about the narrow gate and the narrow road and they make the quote about the way, the truth, and the life. They all of a sudden make those about religious exclusion. I'm like, this is the thing that Jesus was against. It's like they forget that Jesus played fast and loose about who was in and who was out and they definitely forget that Jesus warned those who were consumed with who is in and who is out. He said, you're in danger of being on the outside of the very very boundaries you're drawing and the very boundaries you're guarding. As for the verses themselves, I want to suggest maybe there's some context and some culture that we can bring to them that will help us see them in in a broader light than we currently see them. You see, There's the one about the narrow road and the narrow gate. And one of the things that can be helpful when you're reading the Gospels is when Jesus uses clear imagery, like a road or a tree or a bird or a flower in the field or someone who's out in a field digging or a farmer, these were all images that people would have had locked in their mind from the culture in which they lived. Like if I were to tell a story or a parable about an American fighter jet, you would have an image in your mind immediately of what that looked like. If I were to tell a story about a lion stalking its prey in the Serengeti, you would no doubt recall something from planet Earth and David Attenborough and have an image in your head. 
If I were to talk about a Tesla speeding down a highway, you would immediately have an image of a high-end electric car going down a high. This is what Jesus is doing. So when Jesus talks about the narrow road and the broad road, it's important to think about, okay, what images would have come to mind? First, where are the broad roads that lead to, the, lead to destruction? And it's helpful to know that broad roads in Jesus' day were the Roman roads. Broad roads were the roads that were found in every Roman city. Every Roman city was built on two roads. There was an intersection of something called the Cardo Maximus and the Cuminus Maximus. The Cardo Maximus went north to south. The Decuminus Maximus went east to west. They were cross streets in the middle of the towns that were wide enough, even today, where you could drive cars on that would go either, either way. They would be like wide enough for two lanes. And these cross streets were in the middle of, of towns and cities and settlements that would not have been very far from the Jewish people hearing Jesus' words about the broad roads. And these roads on which the city were built, I mean, these cities... They screamed about the kind of life that promoted Roman ideals, and Roman ideals were the antithesis of Jesus' kind of life. And in the narrow, where were the narrow gates? Where were the narrow roads? Well, those were in places like Nazareth or Capernaum, the place that Jesus and his disciples would have lived and walked. So maybe, maybe this is Jesus talking about empire, empire versus kingdom. And maybe it's the empire's all-consuming grips on our hearts and minds. It's the empire's mentality of victory at all costs, even if it means oppressing many so a few can live the, quote, good life of wealth and decadence while others starve. I mean, Jesus seemed to talk a lot about that thing all the time. Is it possible that these images he's giving of a broad road and a narrow road speak to something more than just whether or not you get to heaven? And by the way, as for Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, John Philip Newell told this story uh, when I was with him uh, a few months ago at a retreat of an interviewer saying to a Jewish rabbi, what do you make of Jesus and Jesus' exclusionary statement about being the way, the truth, and the life? And the rabbi smiled and said, I quite like it. And the interviewer was, of course, a little bit like surprised and said, what do you mean you like it? And he said, well, Jesus' way was the way of love. Jesus' truth was the truth of love. And Jesus' life was the life of love. And I believe that the way of love and the truth of love and the life of love will lead us to a God of love. (laughs) I mean, beautiful. And at some point you go, oh, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? And in many ways... I hear, when I heard uh, John Philip Newell tell that story, it felt like an invitation. It felt like so much more of an invitation, which, by the way, this is what Jesus was all about. And for so long, I've heard those words growing up, almost like a little bit of a threat, like, you better get on with me or else. Instead of saying, no, come and learn my way of love. Come and learn the truth of love. Come and live with me my life of love so that you can experience communion with the God who is love. You see, it's important to remember, Jesus always removed obstacles that stood in the way of people experiencing God. With this in mind, we ought to be very, very careful about ever making Jesus and his life and his words an obstacle to God. Jesus is always inviting us into the life and love of the divine. So let me try to wrap this up. 
I, I'm still here. I'm still here because I'm learning to see religion as only a vehicle to God. I'm still here because I'm learning to see religion as only a vehicle to God and the divine mystery is something that is way, 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 way infinitely bigger than Christianity and all of Christianity's finite orders and denominations and expressions. Yes, I have said several times that Christianity is massive and big and it has a breadth and depth, but it's nothing when compared to the massiveness, the expansiveness, the infinite divine mystery. It's nothing when compared to the size of the heart of God. And I take comfort in that. I am thrilled that every day I am learning that surely God was in this place and I, I did not know. Which is to say, I'm still here because the Christian tradition that I continue to learn more about and the Christian scriptures that I continue to study, they lend testimony to the idea that everything is ours. You see, I'm still here because Christianity doesn't seem to be a tradition designed to hold us back, but one that invites us into something bigger than itself, namely into the heart of God, that invites us into the temple, we might say, into the sacredness of the world in which we live. And the deeper I go, the more I don't know. And the deeper I go and the more I don't know, in some ways it's like the freer I feel. David McRaney writes this. He says, the less you know about a subject, the less you believe there is to know in total. Only once you have some experience do you start to recognize the breadth and depth you have yet to plunder. Let me say that again. The less you know about a subject, the less you believe there is to know in total. Only once you have some experience do you start to recognize the breadth and depth you have yet to plunder. Which means, by the way, when you meet someone who acts like they know it all, they actually don't know very much. And let's not forget, we're invited into the heart of God. We are invited into a mystery, not a mystery to be solved, but one to be enjoyed and explored and trusted. And the deeper we go, the more we know we don't know. And the more we learn there is to know about God who is endlessly knowable. And we have the freedom to do this because it's all ours. It's all sacred. It's all a temple. Every bush is on fire. All the ground is holy. It's all filled to the brim with the glory of God. This is what we learn from the opening words of the text. From the very beginning, there is nothing to fear. And I'm still here because I'm learning the Christian tradition invites us to embrace this, to embrace now. And this, this is my hope for all of us, that we would have eyes to see and we would have ears to hear so that more and more we would hear ourselves and one another saying, surely God is in this place and God is in this place and this place and God is in that place and over there and in that place. And I, I did not know. And with that, with that, we've arrived at the end of this three-part series. But the good news is season three is just getting started. On the next episode, I will be with Adam Phillips to talk about his new book. And it seems like there's a theme so far this year because Adam's talking about how to be a Christian now in his book. Uh, but until then, once again, thank you for joining with us. And until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.